I've entitled today's message, Right in the Middle. Would you say that with me? Right in the middle. You know, the middle is not usually the most popular choice. I was flying recently on an airline that actually allows you, once you get on the plane, to pick your seats. And so, if you weren't early in the boarding line and you got on the plane, which seats do you think were still available when you got on that plane? The middle seats, right? Okay, that's not the seat that most people pick. How many of you are window people? Okay, great view, right? You have a little more room because you can lean up against the window. Um, How many of you are owl people? You are my people. Okay, that's what I prefer, right? Easy to go to the bathroom. I don't have to disturb anybody in the road to get up. I get at least stretch out a little bit with my legs into that owl. But, but the middle seat, miserable, especially if you don't know the two people on each side of you, right? Because think about it. There's nothing to lean against. And then you have to constantly worry to work to keep yourself centered. And what do I do with my arms, especially if the people on the side of me are taking up the armrest? I mean, how much do I touch the person next to me, right? It's it's, this constant the whole flight. What do I do with my arms? This middle seat is just a lot of work. I really can't sit. I really can't relax the way I would want to for that entire flight. flight. Now, think about a car. It's the same in a car, right? If you get the middle seat in the car, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to fish the seat belt out of the seat crevice, don't you? Right? I mean, you're squished between other people. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. Not to mention you're the first person into the car and you're the last person what? Out of the car. I want you to think about a project for just a moment. The beginning of a project is very exciting. Because you're like, this is what we're going to do. It's full of big dreams. The end is celebration. When you get there, you're like, you know what? We've did it. We've accomplished it. But here's what I know. The middle, not so much fun. Okay, there's a lot of hard work in the middle. There's a lot of sacrifice. The middle is where you have to pay the price to achieve the dream. It's where we're presented with challenges and delays and the need to be patient. It's in the middle, if you think about it, that we're tempted to to give up and quit. And so nothing fun often about being right in the middle of something. How about being right in the middle of two people that are at odds with one another? Okay? Talk about uncomfortable. Talk about feeling the tension. Talk about you feel the pain. You're often torn between two people you love. In fact, I just described your Easter afternoon, right? You're getting together with family and you're like, my gosh, I love these people, but they don't all get along. And why do we even do this every year? Anyway, you feel that tension. The middle, we often avoid at all cost, but not Jesus. Because of his love for us, he, was, he willingly chose to put himself right in the middle. So I want you to think about it this way. He chose the middle seat. He chose to involve himself in the most important project in the history of the world. He chose to put himself right in the middle of our relational rift with the Holy God. That's why we celebrate Easter. And what's interesting to me is when you read the account of the Easter story in the Bible, the middle is a common theme that comes up all throughout that story. 
So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to draw your attention to a few of those details concerning the middle in the Easter story. Let's start with the angels inside the tomb. I want to take you to John chapter 20. It's early in the morning and Mary Magdalene is on her way to the tomb. And you got to understand, she is not going there to find a risen Savior. She's going there to anoint Jesus' dead body with spices. It's the Jewish tradition of the day. It's very similar to us taking flowers to the grave in our culture. And so upon her arrival, she's shocked to find out that the stone has been rolled away. So what happens is she immediately goes, she gets the disciples, the disciples come running to the tomb, they peek in that tomb and see nothing but grave clothes that Jesus' body had once been wrapped in. The body that used to be right in the middle of those clothes was now gone. As if the body had escaped without having to be unwrapped. That's what the text actually implies. Well, the disciples go back home. They're bewildered. They fully don't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene is confused too. She's distraught. She's full of grief because not only is her, is her Lord dead now, but now to make things worse, his body is missing. So let's pick up the story in verse 12 or verse 11. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away. She said, and I don't know where they have put him at this. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Now, it's one thing for John, as he's recounting this, this testimony, to tell us that there were two angels in the tomb, but he specifically mentions one seated at the head and the other at the foot where Jesus's body had once been. So think about this. His dead body used to lie right in the what? Middle of where those two angels were sitting. A most unusual detail, but a very important one that helps us understand what Easter is all about. And it's this, and I have it in your notes. Jesus put himself right in the middle to save us from our sins. Now, to better help you understand this truth as it relates to the two angels in the tomb, I need to take you all the way back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 25. Here's the scene. Because of man's sinfulness and God's holiness, for God to have a relationship with the people of Israel, he had to set up boundaries between himself and them to protect them from being consumed by his holiness. So God had the Israelites set up a tent-like structure called the tabernacle that eventually became the temple in Jerusalem. And then God had them build something called the Ark of the Covenant that was to go inside the tabernacle. And it was above the ark that God's presence, his spirit, resided with the Israelites. 
It was above that Ark of the Covenant that God facilitated a relationship with them. And look at the instructions that God gave Moses on how to construct the lid of this ark. And notice what he called the lid. Look at it. Exodus 25, verse 18. You shall make a what? A mercy seat of pure gold. And you shall make two cherubim. What are cherubim? Angels of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, I brought an artist's rendering of what the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. And so take, take a look at this here. This is kind of a, a, a thought process about what that looked like. And here's the question I have for you. Why did God call this lid with the two angels at each end the mercy seat? Well, here's why. Because inside the Ark was placed the law of God. That's what it means in the verse when it says, in the ark, God says, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And here's what the law confirmed. The law confirmed that all of them are sinners to one degree or another. And the law found them guilty as charged. And the judgment for sin, according to the law of God, was death. So knowing that piece of the puzzle... What was it that was right in between the law of God that condemned them as sinners and the presence of God that rested above the ark? What was in between? The mercy seat, the lid. And what happened on that lid once a year is what enabled them to continue to have a relationship with God without his judgment for sin consuming them. So here's what would happen in Israel Once a year on what was called the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would slaughter an innocent animal, take its blood into the part of the tabernacle where the ark was. He would sprinkle its blood on top of the mercy seat right between those two golden angels as an offering for their people's sins. Do you know why the Israelites had to go through this ritual every single year? Because the blood of an innocent animal couldn't pay the price for their sin. The blood of that animal couldn't satisfy the justice of a holy God for their sin. Do you know what was proof of that? That animal that they slayed every year, it stayed dead. It didn't come back to life after it was sacrificed. So I want you to understand this about what you read in your Old Testament. All the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, none of them actually paid the price for sin. All they did was temporarily cover their sins until the real mercy seat and the true Lamb of God came. So let me put this all together for you. Jesus is the true mercy seat. The ark foreshadowed. So think about this. It wasn't that the two angels in the tomb 
at the head and the foot where Jesus' body once laid, were trying to replicate the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. That's not it at all. The mercy seat on the Ark foreshadowed the day that Mary would look into that tomb and see those two angels sitting there. And here's the most powerful part of what Mary saw on that first Easter morning right in the middle of those two angels. You know what she saw? Nothing. Nobody. Why? Because Jesus had risen from the dead. Here's why that's so important. It proves to us what John the Baptist declared to the crowd when he saw Jesus coming his way in John chapter 1. Look what John said. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sins of the world. The resurrection proved to us that Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once and for all. Jesus put himself right in the middle. He sacrificed his life. He shed his innocent blood so that we could be forgiven and be saved from the judgment of sin. And the proof that it's all true is the empty tomb. Jesus himself is the mercy seat that put himself right in the middle between the law of God that condemned us and God himself. So, right in the middle is where Jesus saved us from our sins. This is why Romans chapter 8, verse 1, very famous scripture verse, now says, for those in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any what? Condemnation. Why? Because your sins through Jesus has been forgiven. Jesus paid our debt in full. He put himself right in the middle to reconcile us back to God. A second detail in the Easter story concerning the middle that I want to draw your attention to. Let's call this the tearing of the temple curtain. The tearing of the temple curtain. Now, if you were here last week, I talked about this to some degree when we took communion, but I want to expand on it a little further. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 27. Here's the scene. Jesus has now been hanging on the cross for six hours. And we're told this down in verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So that means he died. And I love the way this verse puts this because, you know, there's a lot of bad things that were done to Jesus by the Romans, by the Jews, by the religious leaders. But you understand nobody killed Jesus. He willingly gave up his life. It's a beautiful verse. Now look what we're told in verse 51. At that moment, otherwise at the exact moment when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, now, what in the world is that even talking about? Well, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was this big, thick, tall curtain that blocked off the most important part of the temple. Now, let me help you wrap your mind around this with a, with a few illustrations. <clears throat> this is a model of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. There was a very big platform. In fact, often when it says Jesus was teaching in the temple, it would have been somewhere on, in, in the outside of that platform. And then the tall structure in the middle is actually the temple itself. 
And I broke it down into three main layers. There were actually more layers than this, but for the sake of being simplified, let me help you understand what, this, what these layers were about. There was the outer court, and that's where the average person was allowed. No further can they go into the temple. And then there was a place called the holy place, which is where only the priest of Israel could go. That's where they did their priestly duties on behalf of all the other people. And then the most important part of the temple was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, okay? Now, what separated the holy place from the most holy place was a what? A curtain. So I want you to think about this for a second. What was it that was right in the middle between the people and the presence of God? A giant curtain. Give you an idea how big this curtain was. The Roman historian Josephus, who lived at the time, tells us that that curtain in his writings was 30 feet by 60 feet, four inches thick. In fact, he writes that if you were to, to, to get ropes and tie the ends of that curtain and put it with horses, even horses weren't able to pour, pull it apart. Here's the question. Who do you think tore that curtain? God did. It's significant that it's, we were told that it was torn, not just torn, but it was torn from top to bottom. Why did God tear that curtain? Well, to communicate this powerful truth, Jesus put himself right in the middle so we could have eternal life. Now, let me give you a definition of what I mean when I say eternal life. Eternal life is a personal relationship with God. That's the, a biblical definition of what it is. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's, it's much more than that. A ticket to heaven is part of it, but it's, it's more than that. It's a personal relationship with God forever. One in which he is your father and you are his child. And by tearing the curtain, what God was telling the whole world is that through my son Jesus and what he just did on the cross to pay for your sins, you can now have a personal relationship with me. One in which you are at peace with me when it comes to your sins. One in which you don't have to be afraid to approach me and expect judgment for your sin. One in which you can continually find mercy and continually find help in your time of need. See, before Jesus died on the cross, a relationship with God was not a very personal experience. You couldn't just walk into the holy of holies in the temple and live. You die because of your sin. That's why the curtain was made to be so thick because you didn't want to accidentally fall through that curtain into the holy of holies. But through Jesus, it's now possible to approach God with confidence at any time. Why? Because Jesus prayed the price for your sins in full. There's no more debt that you have. He prayed the price for your sins, past, present, and future. And that opens the door for a personal relationship with a holy God. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way in the New Testament, verse 19, such a powerful verse. Look at this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the what? blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest talking about Jesus over the house of God, let us draw near 
to God. So think about this. Just as Jesus is the true Lamb of God and the true mercy seat, He is also the true temple curtain. It was through His body that was ripped open that His blood was shed to pay the price for our sin so that we can now have a personal relationship with God. That's called eternal life. So no longer do we need to approach him in fear of judgment or death, but now we can approach him as a loving heavenly father who wants to give us mercy and grace and help us in our time of need. That's why Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 16, let us then, otherwise, because of everything that Jesus has done for us, because Jesus is our great high priest, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, here's the best part about all this. Before the cross, in Old Testament times, God's presence dwelt with his people in a temple behind a big, thick curtain. It's not very personal. But after the cross and ever since, God's presence now dwells in his people by way of his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes to live in those who place their faith in Jesus for salvation. So think about the switch that God made when people put their faith in Jesus. You know what God does? God puts his Holy Spirit right in the middle of their lives to help them. And Jesus said it would be so. The night before he died on the cross, Jesus gave this promise. John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you. You say, what is that talking about? Well, Jesus has been telling them, I'm about to leave you. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And they're freaked out about it. And they're like, well, wait a minute. How are we going to do life without you? How are we, how are we going to do this? And Jesus says, don't worry. I'm going to send you another helper just like me. And he will be you, with you forever. Who is it? Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you. Otherwise, he lives with you now. But after the cross and after the resurrection, he will be what? In you. Do you understand? This is a part of what we celebrate today as Christians, that we have a personal relationship with God facilitated by his spirit, which now lives in us. This is why when you became a Christian, some of you know this well, all of a sudden things in the Bible started to make a whole lot more sense. Why all of a sudden you began to see the issues of life in a different way? Why all of a sudden you began to change from the inside out? It's the Holy Spirit within you, a personal relationship with God that's enabling that to happen. This is why I tell people all the time, Christianity is not about go clean yourself up first and then you could come to God. You ever run into somebody that's like, I ain't coming to your church on Easter because if I step in there, the place is going to burn down. They don't understand what Christianity is about. That's not Christianity at all. Christianity is not go clean yourself up first and then come to God. No, it's actually come to God as you are. Find forgiveness for your sins through Jesus. And God, by the way of his spirit, will go to work to clean you up from the inside out as you walk in a personal relationship with him. 
That's why Paul penned this beautiful verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, be confident of this, that he who began a good work, what does it say? In you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Otherwise, until the day you see Jesus face to face. So here's what I want you to know. Here's the testimony of every single person who has a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Here's their testimony. My testimony, your testimony. I may still have lots of warts and flaws and things that I need to get right in my life. I still have a long way to go, but by the grace of God, I'm not who I used to be. I have been changed, I am now being changed, and I am confident that I will continue to be changed because he who began a good work in me is going to finish what he started. And one day I'll be a finished holy product when I see Jesus face to face in eternity, amen? Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus put himself right in the, what is it? middle. He became the true temple curtain torn so that we could have a eternal personal relationship with a holy God that loves you more than you could ever imagine. One more detail in the Easter story concerning the middle that I want to draw your attention to. Let's call this the arrangement of the crosses. This is the one that you're most familiar with when it comes to the middle in the Easter story. Let me take you to Luke chapter 23. After Pontius Pilate finally gave the green light to have Jesus executed, we're told this in verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, so there was this rock formation that looked like a skull. That's where they did their crucifixions in front of. It says they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, and the other on his left. So understand the scene. If one criminal is on the cross to the right, and the other one is on the cross to the left, which cross was Jesus on? The one right in the middle. It's not by accident that God in his sovereignty had Jesus find his way onto the middle cross. And that detail in the story teaches us another important spiritual truth as the story unfolds, and it's this. Jesus put himself right in the middle to show us the way. The way of salvation to a personal relationship with God is not through your works, but by way of faith in Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. You cannot earn your salvation. Let me tell you why. Because it's free. It's freely given to us through faith in Christ. In the account of the criminals hanging on each side of Jesus beautifully and powerfully illustrate that truth. So let's pick up the story further down in Luke 23, verse 39. It says one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, let me stop there for a second. If you combine the other gospel accounts, okay, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all record the crucifixion. Some give more details than others. And when you put them all together, you get a full picture. If you combine all those accounts, here's what you find out. 
At one time, it wasn't just one criminal hurling insults at Jesus. At one time, both of those criminals were hurling insults at Jesus. But something happened in the heart of one of those criminals as he was on his way to his own death. Here's what happened. He recognized his sin. He recognized Jesus's innocence and he put his faith in Jesus to save him from his sins. Look at it. Verse 40. It says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. So you know what's happening in that one criminal's life? There's repentance happening, right? He's recognizing he's a sinner. He is guilty as charged. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said he's talking about Jesus' innocence. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know what he's saying? I believe you have the power to save me. I'd like to be in your kingdom when you arrive. He's putting his faith in Jesus' ability to save him. And you would think that Jesus would say, you know what? I'm the only innocent one up here. (laughs) You're getting what you deserve. But that wasn't his mission. He came to the world to save people just like that man. And look what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So understand what happened. He got saved. He found eternal life. He died and went to heaven. And so on that day, one criminal died and went to heaven. One criminal died and didn't. One right now as we speak is spending eternity with God. And one right now as we speak is spending eternity without God. The only difference is what each decided to do with Jesus who was in the middle of both of that. One put his faith in Jesus and one didn't. And so one found himself on the right side of eternity and one didn't. And you know what this proves to us? It proves to us that salvation is free. It's not something that you can earn. So you say, what do you mean by that? Well, do you understand that criminal couldn't go down? He couldn't get himself off of the cross, go do some good works, climb off of the cross, back again, and then die. He had no other thing in front of him. He couldn't get down. Yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Yet through faith in Jesus, he found himself on the right side of eternity. Let me tell you, there are two things that are going to keep people out of heaven. There are two things that keep people on the, right, on the wrong side of eternity, and it's this. The first one is pride. I got this. You know what? I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm least better than that person and that person and that person. You know what the problem with that is? We all grade ourselves on a curve, don't we? Pride is going to keep a lot of people. I got this. You don't got this. You're in trouble without the mercy seat in your life. You're in trouble without the curtain in your life. You're in trouble without the Lamb of God in your life. So pride is going to keep a lot of people out of heaven. The other thing is shame. I don't know what God would want to do 
have anything to do with a person like me. Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? Do you know how much sin? Do you know how much pain I've caused people? And Jesus hung right in between two criminals to give the invitation that it's for everybody, whether you have one sin or a million sins. The invitation is for everybody. The story of Jesus right in the middle of the two thieves shows us that the way to eternal life comes through faith in Jesus. And this is so beautifully and powerfully illustrated to us through the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. And you know this, it's a very famous scripture verse, but look at it with me. Paul says, for all have sinned. How many have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let me tell you what that means. All have sinned. Some of us have more sins than others, but we all what? Fall short of the glory of God. None of us meet his holy standard. So for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all, otherwise those who find themselves on the right side of eternity, everybody that's going to be in heaven, this is how it's going to be. For all are justified, what's the word? freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by what? Faith. Jesus put himself right in the middle of those two thieves, those two criminals to show us the way. He's still putting himself in the middle of people's lives today, saying, what side of eternity do you want to be on? The invitation is open to everyone, no matter who you are. So if you think about what we talked about this morning, I want you to think about it this way. Everyone gets right with in the middle. Everyone gets right with God in the middle. And the middle has a name, and his name is Jesus. So think about it. Salvation has a name, and his name is Jesus. Eternal life has a name, and his name is Jesus. The way has a name, and its name is Jesus. This is why Jesus said, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you bow your heads with me. I don't know what brought you in here this morning, but the invitation is still going out. I don't know how you began watching online this morning, but the invitation is still going out. And the invitation is this, Jesus wants to spend eternity with you. So if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus, it's the most important thing that you could ever do in your life. It's how you're, you, you have a personal relationship with God. It's, it's how you secure yourself to be on the right side of eternity. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of faith to do that. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But I do want to pray with you this morning. If you're here and you have never put your faith in Jesus, every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, would you just slip up your hand for a moment and say, Pastor, pray for me. I want Jesus in my life. Pray for me, Pastor. I see that hand. I see that hand. His hand's going up all over this place this morning. You can put your hand down once you've raised it. I just want to want to pray a prayer with you. Christians, if you have already given your life to Jesus, would you do the honor of praying with these folks? Let's all pray together. So let's, let's pray. Dear God, I thank you 
that you sent Jesus and he put himself right in the middle so that I could be saved. Today I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. And I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life and be my Savior and be my Lord from this day forward. Help me to grow in you. Help me to learn more about you. Help me to serve you with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Would you all stand in the room? I'm going to ask our prayer partners. Would you guys go ahead and begin to come? Here's what we're going to do as we close. We're going to sing a song that we sang earlier. Just as a way of ending and celebrating how Jesus put himself right in the middle for us. But if you're here this morning and you gave your heart to Christ for the first time. After we dismiss, we would invite you, if if you'd like to come pray with one of our prayer partners, we'd like to encourage you in your faith walk. Also, uh, if you're here and you need prayer for anything in your life, you say, I got something going on in my life. I got a relative going through this. I'd like to pray for them. Our prayer partners will be up here ready to pray over you as well. So we'll do that after we dismiss here. But let's just worship Jesus. Let's celebrate him one more time. If you don't have a church home, you're welcome to join us here. We'll help you grow in your relationship with God. But let's celebrate Jesus one more time.
thank the master, I thank the Savior, oh, I thank God, oh, I thank God, oh, I thank God, oh, I thank God. Oh, let's give our God one more hand and praise. We worship you, God. We thank God for all that he's done. Those of you that need to come up for prayer, please don't hesitate to pray with our prayer partners up front. For the rest, enjoy the rest of your Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you. And um, don't forget to take pictures with your family out front.